Girl. Alrighty. Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast, episode 176. This week we have uh, a lawyer Ann Kelson with us. Hey everybody, honored to join you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, everybody knows uh, Roger's having some some uh, family stuff going on and Marty had some family stuff going on tonight. So um, just, just me tonight as far as the panel. Um, I've been I'm not sure what's up with green jeans, but uh, we'll have the rest of the panel back, uh, I'm sure, on Tuesday or Thursday. Um, uh, one thing I did want to mention real quick, and this was just really, I, I, I'm going to mention it right away to publicize it because it just has to be because this was, ah, oh, this just made my blood boil. Um, and there's people, very good people working to help him. Um, so there was a, a member of our community, a lot of people have been helping, Nick Risden. And uh, he was assaulted by police today in a hospital um, when they somebody smelled mar- said they smelled marijuana. He's being treated for medical stuff, and I'm not going to get into his personal details, but he's being treated for for some medical stuff. And he was violently assaulted today by police in a hospital uh, in in heavy treatment, and um, it was pretty fucked up. So uh, when when this is it goes out there, we need help, you know, getting this out there in the media and making sure that everybody knows about this that they. And, uh, you know, make sure that this never happens to anybody again. Um, yeah, it, it's that's I just I don't even know what to say. It was so f- super fucked up. But we found some really awesome people uh, and some awesome lawyers. And uh, we're going to try and uh, get them some help. Um, and the community has helped them out a hell of a lot so far. I'm sure they're going to keep helping them out as well. But I just wanted to help put a spotlight to it because it's the best way to prevent this kind of stuff from happening again is to make sure people know that it happened. And, you know, I'm not going to say any details because it's not really, you know, not trying to spread his business either, but this, this was too, too fucked up and too wrong, you know? So, all right. Um, on a better note, um, <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us. Um, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, and then uh, and then we'll go into a little bit about some of the stuff we were talking about before the show. Okay. Um, okay. So my name is Ann Kelson, and I'm based in Oakland, California. Um, I actually grew up here, but I've lived in a lot of different places. Um, you can actually see a piece of calligraphy from one of the countries I used to live in um, before I became a lawyer. And... Um, yeah, so I've been practicing for about 10 years. I'm a cannabis lawyer, cannabis business lawyer. I do advice and counsel work as it relates to employment laws. I do regulatory compliance, intellectual property, um, just you know, service contracts and the like. Um, I also do have some other incarnations. You know, one of my great passions is uh, constitutional law. Um, and I'm also, you know, so fascinated about the intersection between plants, medicine, intellectual property, and you know our rights. Um, I think there's a lot there, and that's one of my orientations towards being in cannabis law. Um, <clears throat> I could talk a little bit more about my prior background, but um, I know tonight some of the things we wanted to cover were um, SB 34, the Dennis Perone Brownie Mary Act, which I had the honor to 
work on with um, a variety of activists and also um, Senator Wiener, his aide Angela Hill and some other people will discuss. Um, and also I'm currently working on um, Appalachian rights with some different associations and lawyers and the like and um, creating a symposium for next year. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, what else? Uh, I, so yeah, I practice at McAllister Garfield where I'm of counsel and I also work at uh, Kelsey Law Group, uh, which is in Oakland. And um, I know there's more to say, so much going on. You know, I think before we went on air, we were talking about both, you know, like expansion and contraction generally. Because when we look at Appalachians, it's like so inspiring and could be the future. I hope it is the future. You know, we're doing the work for that. Um, but then there's also just, you know, these harsh realities that we're in right now of, you know, contraction and really like just um, many front war, so to speak, in some ways. But with that, I'll hand it back to you, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, so um, so you did a lot of work on SB 34. You, you, I know you have probably a better perspective than most on that. So uh, why don't you uh, start with that? Um, uh, a lot of people don't know that was one of the biggest um, things. That's actually how I met Dennis, was actually both of us were, were talking at, at an event, speaking out against Amendment 64. Oh, and. Cool. Um, together and uh ended up getting to meet him there and uh he was super funny and uh got to meet uh wayne and lara and uh you know cara um, that first time and then uh you know gotten to become friends with them since then which is always fun to hang out with uh i don't think i've ever not laughed hanging out with wayne but uh <laughs> um uh so yeah so uh, that was actually how I met it. And so every, they passed Amendment 64. And what it is was it really took away people's ability to donate medicine to, to people. And then it also really heavily restricted, you know, medical patients and, and restricted their, their access to medicine. And, um, you know, you, you worked really hard to at least, um, you know, kick down some of those doors that they had put up with that. Definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, it was really so timely. I moved back to the Bay Area where I'm from in the fall of 2017. And so, you know, like everyone, I was just, you know, processing these proposed regulations and going to as many like talks and events and seminars. And so part of my education around this transition was going to, you know, different, um, play, you know, speeches and, and talks like blunt talks. And I had the pleasure not of meeting Dennis Perone directly, but I was, I was in the same room with him in that fall. And I, you know, I really wanted to go up and, and talk with him, but I could tell you know, from a distance that maybe he was a little bit frail. I didn't know the circumstances fully, um, but I was just kind of like so in awe. I didn't even know how to fangirl, you know? Wanted to respect him. And then so surreptitiously like, or um, surreptitious is weird, synchronistically, um, I ended up connecting directly with some of the other people that, you know, like you mentioned, Wayne, and um, you know, patient number one, and you know, some of the compassion programs that had been you know operating, and some that had ceased operating, and so yeah, I mean, really, what happened was I went to a blunt talk, <laughs> and it was really neat because Dennis Perron was there, and he was so happy to see you know the young activists and operators and people you know like elevating the discussion and um, you know, the very next month I went back and people were talking about how these compassionate care programs were getting taxed and how medicine was going to dry up really fast and how like somehow there was this huge gap in the law 
um, it was really strange because I went down to Santa Cruz first. I mean, I'm just telling this because it's almost magical. And I saw Valerie Corral speak. This was in the late fall of 2017. And I saw some people from SC Veterans and some of the other, you know, big compassionate care programs speaking and talking about this whole conundrum of like, what do we do? How do we even apply a tax to medicine? What's going to happen to the supply? How do we like, this is an emergency. The very next night in San Francisco, I went to another blunt talk and there was, you know, one compassionate care program activist talking about the same thing. They asked for legal help. Um, it was my friend Ryan Miller from Operation Evac, so proud of him. And my friend um, Joseph Aroni uh, and pro bono client Sweetleaf Joe was sitting right there as well. And I met him and he followed up and like actually was like, yeah, we really do need help. And so, you know, very quickly there was this, you know, coalition that was formed of compassionate care programs and me. And then eventually I was honored to get Dale Schaefer, who's an amazing activist and lawyer. He actually, you know, served and, and was able to keep his bar card, but, you know, went to jail for um, some very intense things um, back in Prop 215 that very much center on patient rights and, and the law. So he's one of my personal heroes and he got right in there with me. Um, but, you know, just in the midst of this, Dennis Perone passed away, you know, and I didn't know him. I never had that. But all of a sudden I met Wayne, I met Laura, you know, I met um, so many of the people I think of like these other activists who, you know, learned from Dennis and some who knew him very well. Um, you know, Valerie Carell had one of the longest running compassionate care programs and she was part of the coalition still, um, you know, Wham is continuing onwards, um, I believe. And, you know, Joseph, Aroni from Sweetleaf is, you know, continuing on in different capacity, but that's fast forward now two years. So the reality was that in January, we were at um, a public health crisis. I know I'm probably talking really fast, but Dennis Perone passed away right when that happened. And we all kind of rushed into the first cannabis advisory public hearing, which was with volunteers who had been appointed by this. I think they had applied and been appointed by the agencies to you know have these different hearings from stakeholders and you know a bunch of us in this coalition different people went to the hearings and said you know sounding the alarm and saying we have a public health emergency on our hands there are patients that can't access medicine anymore these programs are getting taxed you know they're um the supply chain is you know just starting up and yet there's this huge gap in the law where they wanted to treat any cannabis transaction that was a donation as a sale. And what that really means to slow down is that for any cannabis that was donated across the supply chain from January of 2018 onwards, both the excise tax some people were paying, which is 15%, and the cultivation tax and the local tax, even if there was no sale. So that means you're having to come up with 40% or more of what the actual cost of the cannabis was upfront just to get it to patients, okay? Um, it was prohibitive. It was definitely not something that was the correct application of the law in my opinion. <laughs> I know I should slow down, but um, this is how we had to get in immediately. And it actually took almost two years, you know, to get this law passed. We're now in, in November of 2019. <laughs> so two legislative cycles. Um, but I should slow down and, and let you let you kind of interject there because I just started on the 
the public hearings and we didn't even get to how this even started to become a bill. No, 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 um, go ahead. Uh, I don't need to interject at all. Go, please tell well, us more. So what's fascinating that most people don't know is that the Bureau actually offered to meet with us and we did meet in private twice. So um, it's kind of, um, you know, in a way, something I'd like people to know because they did actually take seriously all of the patient testimony that was provided at these hearings. We had amazing articulated, well-articulated um, people who have been, you know, the compassionate care programs and providers and, you know, folks like Wayne Jessman that you mentioned, you know, patient number one, Valerie Corral was right up there, you know, Ralph Trueblood, I could go on and on, of course, Ryan Miller, um, you know, Sweet Leaf Joe, everyone, you know, came out with their patients. And so the BCC met with us twice. We started talking about, you know, potential regulations maybe that could be created. And it was really, I think at that point, an open question as to whether or not we could get some kind of reform by way of regulation or whether we had to go by way of an actual law that goes through, you know, the Senate and the assembly and gets the governor's signature. And I think the tension around how much an agency can regulate and how much, you know, the <clears throat> legislative body can can create laws is is a very gray place in some ways. In other ways, maybe it's more clear. But the good thing is that the CDTFA, our taxing agency, got you know confronted in all these hearings, and they finally said, "Okay, guys, you don't have to pay the excise tax." And while we had this at that point. Um, Senator Scott Weiner had um, gotten involved, very concerned. Senator from um, San Francisco, from the Castro district, representing that district first as a supervisor, county supervisor, and then now a, a state senator, um, you know, very much felt that he um, needed to be sure that this emergency did not get, you know, unaddressed. And he actually quite heroically, I'm skipping ahead, um, while we were kind of waiting for the BCC to help us, and I commend them for meeting with us. Um, I can't say very much more about it, but I, I do really appreciate it. Um, you know, he got in there and he saw that, you know, this was something where, you know, the very patients in his district and, you know, historically the people who created, you know, Prop 215, Dennis Perone's very neighborhood, um, you know, needed to make sure that there were protections to carry out these legacies because there still are patients who have wasting syndrome. There still are patients who have cancer. One of Joe's, Sweet Leaf Joe's patients is a patient who has HIV, who is a veteran, who has also had different bouts of cancer, okay, who is terminally ill, low-income patient. So these are the kind of like cross-section of people that were being affected and still are affected right now by way of like how our laws have been implemented. Um, and so, you know, he basically went and created the opportunity to take what was another proposed set of laws, I believe this is kind of complicated to explain and essentially gutted what was part of a, a bill and inserted some of this new proposed law. So, and oh, sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Speaking of sweet leaf, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Oh, is that him? Hey there. Yay! Oh my god, Joe, you didn't know we were going on, did you? No, no, I didn't. I was actually sending out stuff to different media earlier about the the upcoming giveaway with uh with Hall of Flowers and Garden oh, of Eden. And amazing. uh amazing. Yeah, you I just so 
dotting my eyes. I should have told you about this. It's been going, my whole week's been so fast. You're amazing. Okay, <laughs> fast forward to where we are now. Joe, you've been tracking the show a little bit, right? Um, what the, right now? So, yeah. so I was going to say, why don't, no, why don't, actually, uh, no, I haven't. I, I just got the link and then I was like, Oh, I, I'll call in. I was like watching a movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, do you want right to pop yeah. in for a second and tell us about what your, uh, what you got going on for a second? Not to oh, sure. totally interrupt, but. So I'm Sweet Leaf Joe and I'm the founder and director of the Sweet Leaf Collective. And we provide free medical cannabis to low-income, terminally ill Californians. And we've been doing it since 96. Did it for a while under 215. And now with 64, we've you know had to do these creative pivots and um, figure out how to continue the compassion mission. So Joe, we were like in the middle of kind of telling the story of, you know, like how it all started with the public hearing, the advisory hearings and then the bill. But like mm -hmm. we haven't gotten to like what SB 34 ended up being. But like, I think it's so important for you to talk about how quickly in some ways when we talk about like how long things take in cannabis time or cannabis law time, dog years, right? Um, oh, man. Now, like actively working with something like Hall of Flowers to do something good for patients. But can you tell us initially what, where the problem or where, you know, kind of what you're solving right now, um, how that started with Hall of Flowers and kind of like how this is going to help patients a little bit more? Oh, yeah. Well, so the, the Hall of Flowers giveaway is uh, we're going to be doing it within the next week. And Hall of Flowers. They had a bunch of leftovers from an event. Um, I want to say it was probably like nine months ago or something, and they were required to destroy it. And when they were doing that, some of the people working there, they knew about compassionate cannabis, and they wanted to make sure that the next time there were leftovers, that it would go to compassion. And so they did an event, I think it was a month or two ago, and they have some leftover product and they are donating that to sweet leaf patients and also to operation evac patients. And it's just great to see people in the industry who, who want to get things to compassion, you know, instead of destroying it, it does, it's, it's completely usable product that these people are being required to destroy when actually you know, we can get it to the patients that need it. Yeah, I actually attended um, all three Hall of Flowers. And I think the first Hall of Flowers was where this issue came up. And it was like, I almost want to say it was like, okay, in the spring of 2018, maybe late spring. And what happened was, as you described, there was, you know, you, there were samples that people would get attending this B2B trade show. But at the end of the, the fair, there, were, there was actually a lot left over. I mean, flower pre-rolls, what have you. But because of the regulations and because of the way the plan for that event was implemented, they did have to, they were required to destroy the cannabis, everything, all of those different kinds of goods. And, you know, just as Joe said, people were really upset about it because, you know, it was tested. It was good. It would have been anything that you could put in a dispensary you know, for sale otherwise, and it was just, you know, completely rendered unusable. 
um, when it could possibly in a different way, if we had planned things differently, gone to the patients. So, you know, for me, SB 34 took from January of 2018 all the way to, you know, a month ago. And in between, we had one hall of flowers where this happened. And then, you know, hall of flowers happened a couple more times. And there wasn't so much of a waste issue, I believe. But, you know, people are working on it. And now, Joe, like, it's amazing. You're, you know, working directly with licensees to make sure that patients can get really safe, tested medicine, you know, through the licensed supply chain, you know, with all of that accounted for. So great work. Yeah, it, it feels good. And it's just great to see people in the cannabis industry that want to support compassion. And, you know, I think this is going to set a great precedent for other cannabis events where if they do have leftovers, like, hey, let's let's get it to compassion. And that's, I mean, just going kind of to the heart of the matter, I think part of why it took so very long, besides all of the normal gridlock in Sacramento and then some, because we're kind of in chaos land the last two years, both building the plane and flying it, so to speak, as people have been talking about again recently. And, you know, in the midst of all that, it's just like trying to get cannabis consistently to patients through documented and compliant compassionate care programs has been very hard. Um, you know, I know Joe can speak to that much more at length. So Joe, like while we were going through all of these different hearings and, you know, both in Sacramento, once we had a bill and, you know, even the advisory committees and, you know, the last year or so, um, how has it been for your patients? How have they been impacted? Um, it's been difficult. Definitely the amount of cannabis that we've been able to help facilitate give, giving away has, has dropped dramatically. Um, I feel like we're at a point now where we've navigated parts of the supply chain. And so we are able to get some compassion out to our patients. Um, but we are still liable for the taxes. So we've had to be, had to do fundraising to pay for the taxes on the cannabis that, that we're giving away for free. So with SB 34, when that gets implemented in March, that will then remove those taxes. So, so we won't be required to pay that, which is, is going to be great. Right. Because, you know, part of, I think the frustrating thing I was getting to was, you know, fight, you know, bringing this, bill forward twice in two different ledge cycles and having, you know, it pass through both the Senate and the assembly, you can go back to that. And then, you know, Governor Brown vetoing it. And then this last cycle, you've had patients that have like been seriously impacted, right? I mean, you've had, I believe you've had patients that have even passed away and, and we've talked about this. Yeah, at, we have. You know, this isn't really, and at the same time, one of the biggest concerns has been diversion. But, you know, ultimately, as you and I both know, according to the law, you know, when you work through the licensed supply chain, you have to keep records for seven years of everything, including working with a program like yours. And so yeah. I'm venting here, but, you know, I was talking with a journalist recently and they were asking me, you know, how much of a percentage of medicine should be donated to patients. And I was almost balking in a sense, because, you know, my first instinct 
is rooted in you know the way that you provided medicine to patients before these you know regulations came into effect under Prop 215, which is you know as much as the cultivators could stand to donate and want to donate consistently to you know the terminally ill and you know our veterans and these vulnerable populations, but you know the the real reality right is that you know having to cover these taxes has seriously constricted the ability to do so and even when those taxes are alleviated it's still an incredibly difficult thing for a licensee to be able to set aside a serious amount of cannabis consistently right I mean, oh yeah and i mean that's just one thing too you know we're basically relying on the kindness of other cannabis companies permit holders to to do work that you know that we're not able to do because we don't have a license and you know so you got distributors like picking stuff up and dropping stuff off they're you know volunteering the time of their employee they're paying for the gas insurance on the vehicle you know we have to get uh the cannabis when we're getting it from a cultivator we have to get it tested so we need labs to provide us free testing um you know, we've been working with Spark the past few months and we've done three giveaways there so far. And so it's like with 64, I'm not allowed to, to be plant touching because I don't have a license. So it's got to be the employees there. So again, Spark is volunteering the, the employee work hours. So it's it's really, I feel like compassion is really based on you know, compassionate companies that, that want to see this happen as well, because it's definitely a team effort. It's, it's team compassion. And, you know, it's pretty tricky navigating the supply chain and making sure everything is, is, you know, passing through everything and, and hitting the deadlines. It's, it's complicated. And just like really to go to the heart of some of these misconceptions, I think when we were, you know, having to testify at hearings and, you know, address different issues that people had as this law, you know, was proposed two different ledge cycles, you know, it's not as if you, you know, Sweetleaf or, you know, any of these compassionate care programs are just indiscriminately just giving, you know, compassionate care donations to anyone you know, part of the requirement of even being a program is, you know, maintaining records and having, you know, different patient groups and, you know, making sure that you have agreements with those patients, you know, and certainly for you, you know, your, your um, work has been with, you know, a very discreet population, you know, of terminally ill people, you know, in, in San Francisco. I was actually mentioning Ed before. Um, mm, yeah. I don't know if you want to say Ed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Ed, he was, you know, coming to a bunch of the hearings. He was a patient representative of people who receive compassion. He's, you know, a senior. He's low income. He's a veteran. Uh, he's completely blind. He's almost completely deaf. He has HIV. And last year, he was also diagnosed with cancer. And so this is a prime example of people that that need compassionate cannabis. They can't afford it, and they they have very large handicaps, like multiple terminal illnesses, also being blind, 
And, you know, these are the people in society that, that, you know, we need to help out. You know, we got to be compassionate to, to people who are, are in these sorts of positions. I mean, it's in some ways really heroic just to have seen this bill finally become law because, you know, we had patients like Ed right up front, you know, Scott Wiener was very um, committed to making sure that the patients spoke and were represented um, and that, you know, people like you and, um, you know, Sean Kiernan from Weed for Warriors and, Operation Evac, Ryan Miller. Um, I don't want to leave anyone out, and I know I am. <laughs> oh, uh, Sarah. Sean, uh, Sean was one of our early guests. Oh, excellent. Sean is incredible. I mean, I, it's like one thing Love we have that guy. Anything about was that, you know, like when we did hit some really hard points, as some people said, you know, it was like regulatory whiplash, you know, committees had concerns, specific um, senators had concerns you know, like analysts had concerns and, um, you know, Sean Kiernan from Weed for Warriors and, you know, his um, veterans, um, all of the different chapters, um, Elizabeth Ortiz, um, oh, tremendous single mom, veteran, um, uh, patient, activist. <laughs> I mean, these are people that went into Republican state senators offices who have veteran constituents, veterans and their family who are veterans and talked about the fact that we've got right now, and Joe and I've heard this statistic far too often, 22 veteran suicides a day, many of them connected to opioids. PTSD is very effectively treated with cannabis for some of these veteran populations, as so they've testified. I'm not making any sense, they have testified. There's studies even. Um, and you know, at the same time, it's also something where the veterans, you know, like Ed that we mentioned, very much need to have, you know, access as they did under 215, you know, to donated cannabis because they're on fixed incomes. They often have all sorts of complex of symptoms that can be effectively um, assisted with cannabis. And, you know, it kind of goes straight to the heart of so many of the issues that Americans are facing, including, you know, lack of effective, um, coverage for, you know, some of some of these major health conditions that quite frankly, you know, have been shown to be better treated with cannabis than many other things. So yeah, it's just, uh, I honestly, like, if anything else, I was just praying throughout and I know Joe was and so many of the people we've spoken of that we could have this win, because it truly has been an emergency and, and the emergency isn't totally over. Right? You know, um, there still are, you know, major access issues for patients, even when we can get these giveaways and when we can have, you know, these, you know, licensees committing to um, different programs, you know, in the future, next year, and even, you know, in this last year, it's like, this is truly exceptional, to say the least, that with all of these taxes and all of these constraints, some of the businesses have, have stepped forward. Yeah, Sorry, it's great. It's great to see that. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow. Um, well, I guess one thing we were talking about too, and Stephen, I, I know you've got your mic off, but you know, uh, Joe, when we were talking about the history and lead up to SB 34, we were talking about Dennis Perone. And um, maybe you could speak to your own connection because 
recently, you know, we, we were talking about SB 34 and I, it's just so great to hear you talk about the early days, you know, um, I hate to put you oh, on yeah. so important so people yeah. know what, what, what we're talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's amazing how far we've come with, with cannabis. Um, when I was first involved with medical cannabis, you know, it was 1996. Dennis Prone had his buyer's club in downtown San Francisco. And, you know, they were really doing a lot of good work. They made the Compassionate Use Act. You know, they passed Proposition 215 in 96. And, you know, Dennis really, really paved the way for a lot of people. And Dennis Prone and Brownie Mary really prioritized compassion and helped kind of like put that into the foundation of our industry. And yeah, back in the day, it was crazy. In 96, normal... I think I still have one of these brochures. Normal made a brochure that we would circulate to doctors, basically explaining to them about their First Amendment rights, because at that time, the federal government was going after doctors like Dr. Todd Micaria and trying to take away their license to practice medicine because they were giving cannabis recommendations. And this is when California had legalized medical cannabis. So it was it was pretty crazy that the, the feds were, were going after doctors. I, I'm, I think that that case went to the Supreme Court and it was ruled as First Amendment. The, the doctors have the freedom of speech to, to talk to their patient about something that would help them, even if the federal government says it's really a legal Schedule One substance. But yeah, it's um, the history of the industry. So much has changed. So much has happened. Um, I really think the younger generation right now probably doesn't know a lot about that history. And, and it, it came with a lot of fights, you know, um, I Dale Schaefer's of- one example. He, he went to jail for like five years for doing a medical grow. I, I just, I just mentioned Dale, um, earlier as, you know, one of the lawyers who stepped in along with me, you know, and, and the different, um, programs and, and <clears throat> yeah, it's, um, but you know, one thing that I loved at the beginning of all of this so early on, Joe, I remember a week after Dennis Perone passed away, I was invited, um, to the castle and, um, I think you were there. I'm pretty sure. And, um, Wayne was there and Laura and many others. And, um, you know, I guess really early on when, when we decided to go to these hearings and ask for help, when you asked for help, when Ryan asked for help, you consistently said, this is for Dennis. And it's so great yeah. that this last cycle, it was actually worked in, you know, to the law to name it after the first two activists, you know? And uh, I know that you were pointing out too, and I, I, I always benefit from hearing this, that you know, not just Dennis Perone, but Brownie Mary herself, like just continued to help patients and refused, even when she was threatened by, you know, arrest, you know, and true civil disobedience at the heart of, you know, the public health emergency going on in San Francisco. Um, And it, I mean, not too soon after these laws were created, you, you know, were on your bike in San Francisco, like, you know, delivering medicine to people, right? 
Yeah. I think you told me once in the last year or so that um, it's the longest continuously running compassionate care program. Yeah, I think that's the, the case because WAM had that the DEA came in in the early 2000s and, and busted them. But yeah, we've been continuously in operation for you know, 23 years now, since 1996. And I think also like one thing that I neglected to mention and Stephen, feel free to interject or tell me if I should mute myself or what have you, but, um, oh, there you are. Okay, good. Is, yeah, um, I just, I just have a little bit of background noise with here, not occasionally, especially with my chair. So I just mute my mic when I'm not talking. That's all. Oh, okay, cool. Okay. Um, well, one thing that we were going to, I think, talk about too, in the midst of all this was, um, Oh, San Francisco, public health emergency, Dennis Perron, making sure it was in Dennis's name. Um, oh, longest continuously running. That many compassionate care programs did in fact shut down, right? Like Sarah Pan. Oh yeah, a whole bunch. I was just on, she's an amazing um, activist, educator. Um, she's a consultant, she's an officer at the Apothecarium and she's now a commissioner and she has the compassion seat of the new commission in San Francisco. She was um, a former co-chair of the SF task force. She ran a compassionate care program. And that's something that she had to testify about for a very long time is like right before the January, you know, regs were implemented last year, she had to tell her patients and so many other programs had to tell their patients that they either were gonna have to, you know, a certain what they had um, in their stock and and let their patients know that they might not be able to give them anything in the future, almost like a, a stockpile, so to speak, or just a last donation. And um, I still think there's a lot of compassionate care programs that have not been able to come back online. I mean, it's, you know better than yeah, I. Yeah, it's been difficult. It's been yeah. difficult. I mean, it's been tricky for me to to navigate it and you know, it's just a lot of people in the industry don't have a lot of bandwidth right now because everybody's just kind of struggling to survive. So, you know, I've talked to, to different dispensaries and people want to get compassion programs going. It's just unfortunately not, not the highest priority. Yeah, you know, I just I'm saw something today about how um, BCC has put on hold like something like 400 licenses because people aren't um, on metric yet. And so it's like some of the dispensers I've been talking to, you know, things have been pushed back because of metric. And so, you know, it's, it's just so much for, for people to be doing right now. But I, I feel like when things even out, we will see more compassion happening. Definitely. But you, I mean, the other thing too, and, and, and you've spoken to this at length and really honored it, is that the farmers, the farms, the cultivators that you, you know, and many other programs originally worked with, the legacy small farmers, there are some, along with, like you've said, the dispensaries and some of the distributors like Flocana, over the last year have still been able to set aside at different points, you know, it's not, it's certainly by no means regular, some um donations for compassion which yeah you know hopefully right next year um we'll see even more of but the one reality and i besides what you've just said and just the very unforgiving 
conditions right now, the, the steep margins, the different, you know, regulatory kind of um, drop off points or extinction events people have been talking about, to be able to survive and to designate, you know, just a portion of some of what folks have, it, it's, it's very hard. And if it's not done before it goes to distribution, even under SB 34, the cultivation tax that's been paid doesn't get to be rebated back. So if I say it another way, sorry, Stephen, I'm going really specific in this law in California, but unless you designate that cannabis is for donation for compassionate care before it goes to the distributor, then the cultivation tax is not relieved. It would have already been paid and it can't, we've been told by the regulators, it can't be somehow like recaptured or, you know, somehow alleviated. But I think that that's probably the next, what we've been saying is the next phase or at least something that Joe, you've been wanting to have happen for the future, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's definitely for the, the three big points that we're looking to in the future, we'll be addressing all the compassion tax at all the different levels of the supply chain. So like Anne mentioned, it only becomes compassion when the cultivator designates that before it goes to distro. So what we're seeing in the supply chain right now is a lot of at the distributor level and at the retail level that's not selling. And no one wants to destroy this. People want to get it to compassion, but the issue is having to then pay taxes on something that you're, you're giving away, something that you're already taking a loss on. And right. so that's one of the things we want to address um, as well, addressing the possibility of getting a nonprofit permit category, like a license type. Yep. And then, and then really the really big app really love to see is some sort of California state tax credits for cannabis businesses that are participating in compassion. So something kind of like what you see with regular nonprofits who are 501c3, you get tax deductions on your federal taxes. But since we can't do this federally, we'd like to see it happen on the state level and then people get deductions on their state cannabis taxes. And I've, I've also been talking to people in San Francisco and I think we might have some momentum there to deal with the city and county taxes because they're also yeah. kind of high in San Francisco. And so one way to possibly alleviate that is that if people participate in compassion, they also get, you know, city and county tax credits as well. Um, I'm, so just I'm trying to hit it on, on both levels. I'm just thinking right now to two people that I really wanted to thank, um, that you know, Joe would back me up on just as you're speaking are um, Max Michelonis from K Street, um, also Jackie McGowan. And um, I know Nicole Elliott who now um, works um, for Governor Newsom but was the director of the Office of Cannabis um, when she was in San Francisco was very committed to getting some local um, guidance and, and um, you know, uh, recommendations in place. The task force actually created some and um, I know that she very much was engaged even up to the very last part of getting SB 34 passed. And I wanted to honor her and mark that. Um, 
But, um, you know, one thing, Joe, too, that you're so good about discussing as well in terms of what we talk about, like what the law does and doesn't do is um, physician's recommendation versus medical. Oh, yeah. Right? Because like the some people, including some of the journalists out there, want to make it sound like any old person can just like go and get a compassionate care donation. I kind of almost wish that were the case if you need it and you're you know, have a medical condition, et cetera, et cetera. We know there's way more constraints as you just outlined than even, you know, businesses wanting to help patients and the like. But um, there was back and forth, both large cycles, this issue, right, of whether or not you needed to have a county medical card or whether a physician's recommendation alone was enough to access compassionate care donations as a patient. So, you know, Tell me, since I brought this, <laughs> I don't want to just spell it all out, at least for your patients and for some of the others, you know, what the important distinction is here and why, why we fought so hard on this point. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the big thing is that those state cards, A, they're not free. And then B, you have to do multiple appointments to, to actually get one. And so with a lot of our patients um, being indigent, they're terminally ill, but they also suffer from mental illness. And so many of them have social workers that will accept their SSI check at the beginning of the month and make sure all their bills and then get them the leftover money because they don't necessarily have the wherewithal to do all that themselves. So asking a patient like that and requiring for them to navigate something that's probably on the level of like getting a, you know, a driver's license, like an ID card, um, it's going to be very difficult for them. And another thing is with that state ID card, the veterans were really concerned because that would, if they got that card, then they're on record saying that they consume cannabis and then they're now no longer legally allowed to possess a firearm. Right. Which so that is, was another, that was another concern for the, the compassion community. That's, and that's something here in like, so I'm in Oklahoma. Well, I've been working a lot in Oklahoma I'm about to, about to head to Africa, but in Oklahoma, they actually, there's three separate statutes that protect gun rights for medical patients uh in in the state interesting and and it's something that you know it you know technically i guess is against federal law but when you have state protections on it you know you can have you know there's no limitations but good luck trying to get literally any gun right protections in california you know it's it's you know I think, you know, so there's a, there's a whole bundling of constitutional law rights, really, when I, you know, want to just call it out there, which is rights to medicine, you know, your Second Amendment rights, your right to privacy, you know, in certain circumstances as a patient, particularly when you're a veteran working through the VA system, okay? And so um, I said it on record, and I know Joe will agree that, you know, we did fight um, the different advocates um, to keep barriers accessible. I did say low, but accessible, you know, for veterans, for the terminally ill, like Joe, you know, mentioned, I mean, it really, you have to pay a hundred dollars to get this card, um, issued by the County. And, you know, it would take multiple appointments. And one thing, 
Joe, um, you know, mentioned many times over in these hearings is that there's some counties that had three month long wait, wait lists. So you'd have to like make an appointment, then hopefully be healthy enough to make it to your appointment three months later, and then, you know, lay out your basis for why you needed the card, pay for it, and then, you know, come back or, you know, however it's processed is at least a two appointment process. And that's just like far too difficult, actually, for someone who's got major medical issues and may even be in the hospital, like when their appointment is, you know, supposed to take place. It's just not not tenable. Um, and, you know, more than anything, I just would love to see more instances like Joe's talking about that become almost like regular and institutionalized if we can have that. You know, right now it's truly is down to like goodwill and economic feasibility for sure, you know, for these different um, licensees to be able to help. But you brought up a really important point, Stephen, which is like California now historically on you know the law now you know coming into 2020 will be that we finally have reinforcement protections for compassionate care in California and what that means is that in Colorado and in Washington that have you know those two states um, when they had medical programs and then introduced the adult recreational market you know that those two states actually my understanding is that compassionate care did not survive if at all or you know barely very little and so now hopefully we can inspire you know people in those states activists and stakeholders and also you know in these states that are starting to incorporate um, beyond just medical rights you know to make sure that the transition in places like Oklahoma right you know where we're talking about where there are tons of storefronts I, I, I don't believe that there's institutionalized and like you know, almost like a support, if not a requirement to donate some of the cannabis, right? So that's at least I know what Joe wanted to inspire. I very much am committed to, you know, we met speaking on this point like a year ago, um, a lawyer activist from Australia who's working and working on like compassion in Australia with patients there and veterans and you know, is intersecting with the opioid crisis there as well. And it's like these these concepts, we really, you know, the people that testified in the Capitol and, and I know, you know, the, the various um, lawmakers that supported it and sponsored it and, and voted for it, ultimately wanna make sure that this is not something that becomes extinct. And I really hope it inspires other places because there's, Joe can say it even better than I, but there's so much of a need, you know? Yeah, and I think you have a really great point there that what we've done is we've created a roadmap for other states to to be able to incorporate compassion again. I think that's really important. Definitely, definitely, because it's not as if there aren't medical patients, you know, that are terminally ill, that are veterans, you know, some of the children, the patients there that have very specific conditions. I know that's another patient population that was very much a part of this um, push, you know, to get this law created. Um, those patients exist elsewhere. And I'm, I'm sure that there are, you know, groups, hopefully that, you know, have, even if it's informal, you know, tried to help. But, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing that needs to stop licensed businesses through the regulated marketplace, um, you know, do the right thing. Joe and others have referred to it as compassionate capitalism. 
I personally just think that, you know, it's something about the consistency um, of maintaining some semblance of patient rights. I hope that there's much more in the future because it's, it's a rough time right now. I, I mean, I'm very preachy about this, but Joe, you can, you can speak to that more than I, and I'm sure Stephen in Oklahoma, I don't know, you know, what, how people are experiencing access to medicine. Um, but, you know, there, it's, I'm sure there's room. Yeah, there's, there's no room for donations or anything like that here. Um, there is a lot of stuff that gets rejected from state testing that I'm sure is disappearing to local avenues, but, um, you know, obviously that's not stuff you necessarily want people getting either. Um, but, um, but yeah, there's not, that's not anything that's in any of the bills here. And, you know, I was thinking what you're saying, you know, it would be nice to see a 1% or 10% or 5% or 2% automatic donation of, of product as far as cultivation to these types of things in a state or, or even maybe a city, you know, it'd be cool to see maybe somebody like Chicago or New York or somebody like that to adopt you know something like a two or three percent you know cultivation tax where they just donate you know their you know three percent of their weight to the these types of programs and then maybe maybe reduce some of the tax burden in exchange for that you know well Ber berkeley does does require that berkeley is the only place i know where they did a voter initiative for the city of berkeley and i think it's two percent of a retailer's gross revenue, what they take in during a year, I think 2% of it needs to, to go to compassion. And I bet, I could be just speculating, but I bet that um, uh, BPG and others in Berkeley were a part of that. I know Etienne Fontan, who's um, one of the founders and principals there. And then, um, oh, I'm just thinking, um, I'm completely, Sabrina Fendrick, um, there has been instrumental, um, both, you know, locally in Berkeley, but also in Sacramento and na nationally, you know, fighting for patients' rights. Um, so I bet they, they may have been a part of that. I wish I knew, but I mean, that's, that's just a start. Um, I hope the commission in San Francisco, you know, starts to revisit some of what the San Francisco task force started to, um, propose in terms of recommendations. Um, but then Joe, you also touched upon this point too, right? Like the state of California, even though we had this big break, so to speak, and a real kind of triage and a, a shortage of, of cannabis donations, um, they are doing a, a nonprofit feasibility study. Statutorily, they are bound to do that. Um, and I know, you know, different compassionate care programs have been contacted. Joe could probably speak a little bit more on this point. But it's the frustrating part about like, you know, you have the regulated market rolled out with this complex tax structure, compounded taxes on the local level. There's a lot of problems there, of course. And then in the midst of that, this feasibility study that's pushed out two years, even though there's a patient need, right? So it's like, great, hopefully we'll have some kind of proposed regulations by, isn't it 2020, Joe? That they have to issue um yeah i think they're yeah they have to wind up their nonprofit feasibility study i believe it's january 1st 2020. but it's it's almost like in some ways i, I don't want to speak too harshly about this but looking at how hard it is for a commercial licensee to license get their license pay the fees 
you know, do all the different things, have the security and the other requirements and operate, you know, we definitely have wrestled with how, to, how would one do that as a nonprofit, you know? Um, and that's really an open question that, you know, California hopefully will, you know, stay committed to answering, but, you know, in these, in these other states too, it's like, what would that look like besides a local tax? You know, what would it look like if there actually are people who are strictly devoted, you know, to being a nonprofit, kind of like, you know, some of these older models like WAM, um, you know, where maybe you have vertical integration, you know, starting from cultivation all the way to patient, or at least, you know, some portion of a business that's devoted to compassionate care, whether it's the testing services or the like, but, um, this, you know, these are times where we have to think really creatively and we have to be like super tenacious. I mean, <laughs> I'm saying this because before this law was actually signed this time around, I think it took many of us like so many surrendering over because it's taken so long. And um, quite frankly, you know, Joe, I know could say something on this. It, it we should have gotten this the first round. <laughs> yeah, it would have made things easier. It would have, it would have. Um, and also Joe, you know, something that we were talking about before you joined was just the connection between small farmers and even like I'm working on Appalachians, but like some of those small farmers that are stakeholders and stand to benefit for a candidate's Appalachian framework, they're also some of the same the same um, groups and you know individual farms that donated to your program and to other programs, right? Yeah, yeah, like Happy Day Farms, um, Huckleberry Hill Farms, Moon Maid, Circadian, um, King Range. Um, so yeah, really, the people that are supporting Compassion primarily are the old school, small mom and pop style growers. And they're like precisely often the same people that are really engaged in regenerative agriculture, you know, yeah. sun grown in these areas that are doing work around cannabis appellations. And they're also sometimes the, the cultivators that are really still focused on the genetics that are beneficial, you know, the very specific genetics that are beneficial to patients so that it's not just, you know, bottom line growing a very high THC plant, but also like, you know, some of the really important characteristics that maybe would be overlooked in other contexts. I mean, this is. Oh yeah. And, and these people too were the ones that were all growing organic before it was required by the state. You know, these were all the trailblazer style people. It's so, you know, we've had to emphasize so many times in these hearings, how important it is that like when people use that tired metaphor about like shining the light, you know, in the darkness and all that, there are all these assumptions about how things operated. And one thing that has blown me away is just the built-in voluntary compassionate care donations that inspired Prop 215 and were carried out, you know, in these hearings and at other points when they brought up, you know, diversion and all these fears, it's like those cultivators, those communities, you know, didn't have to set aside a portion of their harvest at any given point you know, and just give it away to these programs and to these patients, you know, 
there was actually a lot of, I, I don't want to like romanticize it because Joe, you can actually speak to the realities more than I, but like, you know, there was a lot of um, good, whether it was like institutionalized or whether it was, you know, something much more local and inspired, right? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, sorry, I had it on mute there. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like in my experiences, I've talked to so many different people who cultivated and, you know, would, would hang compassion out, not necessarily like, you know, make a whole program about it, but, you know, hand out some free medical cannabis to somebody who needs it. And, you know, that's, it, it seems like a, like a thing in the industry. People know that the plant is really helpful medically and, you know, they give it away free to people who need it. I wonder too, like, you know, how, because we don't really fully understand all of the different things happening um, to the cannabis plant, like both just like in the, you know, different practices that are gonna support it in you know, the near future and even currently, gosh, I'm saying long, long sentences here, but like there is, as you just pointed out, this interesting relationship between you know, the stewards of this plant you know, in these smaller communities that are very much you know, trying to um, create um, a balance like a sacred balance, you know, working with the land and practicing regenerative agriculture, practicing these closed loop systems and also seeing, I mean, I sound lofty, but I think you would say too, like it's like a sacred economy, you know, building and giving back to the very people that inspired the laws and making sure, even if it's not required, right? That patients were still having their needs met. And now that we have yeah. all, way more complicated overlaid systems like metric track and trace and the taxes and the supply chain itself and when you designate and how to even get it you know once you're at a licensed um you know retailer to the the patient these are all things that are getting ironed out but i just like have to speak to the fact that it's even been able to get accomplished at all like there's a certain level of grace and i i'm just like so hopeful that like in the long run, you know, we can have a lot more that protects the patient like we're talking about and also protects these small farmers because like, you know, Steve and I were talking before um, we started to go on air just about some of the economic forces at work right now and some of the um, contraction that's going on and just how tough it is. Like you, yeah. 400 licenses were expired, were suspended um, on October 31st in California. Some of them were suspended because, um, you know, they're just not active. They're not um, businesses that are operating per se, but all of them were um, businesses supposedly that had not completed their track and trace, the metric um, training. And so it remains to be seen whether, you know, a large portion of the supply chain will be able to come back online, so to speak. Um, and when I say that, I think there's like half of the I may be wrong, but half of the distributor licenses may have been affected. Some self-distribution licenses, some storefronts, but we have that, you know, there's um, cannabis stocks now that are trading at the dollar mark. Well, here's, a, here's a question though too, like how much of this year's crop got affected by the fires, by the smoke? Right, 
I mean, each, so we're not through the fire season, you know, um, and Joe, Joe knows Joe's up sometimes in that area, right, Joe, in, in um, the Emerald Triangle and the like, and, and some of the fires. Oh, yeah, I I'm think, up here right now. Yeah, the Kincaid fire they just put out, which is in Sonoma. Um, but our fire season isn't over until we get rain, you know? Yeah. Um, that's my understanding. And, and Joe, have you heard anything like just out in the field about, um, you know, how people have been affected or, oh, no, there was the, also well, the, out, the power outages, right? That was part of it, oh, too. Oh, yeah. I was wondering about that because I figured that would probably affect the indoor people. Like, yeah. that's going to be a pretty big kick in the pants. Um, yeah. You know, I think the fires this year, I don't think they affected as much as in previous years where like, you know, people would have their grow all smoked out and then it, you know, the flowers smelled like barbecue afterwards. So I yeah. haven't heard as much of that going on lately. Um, it's, but I think that was more prevalent during those like Mendocino fires, the ones that, that were, there was a lot more cultivation happening around them, I think. Cause I don't think Sonoma has, a huge amount of cultivation. I feel like I was talking to someone recently and they said that I, I think there's like less than 500 permits in the whole county. Yeah, it's been a, a difficult place to license is my understanding. I don't know it as intricately, but I um, I do think that part of what was what I've been reading, it's like this weird juxtaposition where, you know, some of the um, farmers that are off the grid, for example, um, that, you know, rely on solar and have their own generators weren't um, as impacted, if at all. But then, you know, because of the point of harvest right now, you know, there are different places where, um, you know, people are um, processing or where they're not even processing, they're curing. And, you know, the facilities where um, the flour is being stored as it's being cured need to be kept cool. And I think that there are different circumstances, both for folks that are indoor and for folks that are sun grown and were just curing, you know, in, in some um, capacity where, you know, they were adversely affected because they weren't able to keep the, um, the cooling systems on or, you know, other, um, yeah, other dehumidifiers. Yeah. And I think like, we don't fully know the scope of that. The other interesting thing is that were the areas affected by statute, I know I'm kind of geeking out here, but, um, or sorry, by regulation and by statute here in California, there's um, some protections for disaster relief. So I think there were some counties um, affected by the fires where they were able to get a few, some grace period for um, paying their taxes actually during the outage. And also the, what the, the outage and the fires pose really are that they're like, all of these very specific, not the most forgiving requirements when you lose power. And as a licensee, doesn't even matter what kind of license other than storefront retail, when you lose power, you lose track of the electrical system, you're not on metric anymore, and you're not allowed to move products at all whatsoever. Um, there's a few um, you know, guidelines that allow for some emergency disaster relief, like moving of product and, and the like, but you actually have, or not moving product, sorry, but some operational things that you have to account for if it's a disaster. Um, but even so, I think that people, whether it's the, you know, the cooling or whether it was having to pay taxes or whether it was just like, you know, dispensaries who as storefronts, I think are allowed in some limited capacity to 
um, operate at least initially if they're still, you know, if they've got generator power and the like, but even them, you know, they were impacted because they didn't have customers coming in. You know, it's like there, I think they, there was a dispensary up in Humboldt that had only like a fifth of its, um, of its normal, like, you know, customer flow then, but I don't know. I guess the long, the the long answer, the long-winded one, is that it remains to be seen um, the economic impact of of the fires. But we're still not done. You know, we're not we're not through it yet. I, I'll probably have a better answer for you when I get back from Humboldt um, after this weekend. So. <clears throat> awesome. Um, so. Uh, uh, did you have anything else you wanted to mention on SB 34 before we move on to the Appalachians? Um, um, Joe, I'm, I'm going to defer to you. Is there anything that you want folks to know beyond some of what we covered with like what the law does and what it doesn't do and what we want for the future and, you know, why the past is really important in terms of the legacy? Yeah. I feel like we hit on most of the the main points, um, local, state, regulation, legislation. Um, did you the want to fact mention, that, you know, oh, sorry, go ahead. Did you want to mention your, what you got going on, the, the stuff you were sending me today? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the we're doing a giveaway with Hall of Flowers in the upcoming week. Um, and they're getting to Sweet Leaf Compassion Patients and Operation Evac Compassion Patients uh, little like gift bags with an assortment of topicals and flowers and concentrates. And yeah, we this is all cannabis products that have gone through the regulated supply chain, and this is a completely legal giveaway and it's just exciting to see more of this stuff happening we've also over the past three months uh, been working with Flocana and with spark and so Flocana donates product that's not really moving but it's still looking great and i've been doing fundraising to pay the taxes on that cannabis and then Flocana gets it to spark and then spark gets it to our patients. So sweet leaf now is no longer plant touching. We just operate within the regulated supply chain and sort of guide the donations to the, to the patients. So that's been great over the past three months with Flocana and spark, we've given away cannabis with a retail value of around $50,000. Well, it's neat that, that you're able to find a solution to get around that tax burden and, you know, through donations and, and peeping, people helping out that way. Um, you know, it's really wonderful that that was a, a, a possible solution for you, um, you know, and that uh, you're able to find some companies that can, that can uh, do that. Yeah, no, it's been real great. Definitely the, the community is, is coming together in support of compassion and, it's uh, it's heartening, you know. Gives me hope for the future. I'm so glad you joined us, Joe. Yep. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I don't know much about Appalachians, so I might wind up signing off here. 
Sure. Yeah, I appreciate your time, man. And we just we're talking about you. You messaged me like right before the show, and I was like, you know what? I'll just see if you're free and you can come on and talk about your stuff. And you know, it was relevant to what we were saying, so I just thought it was good timing and uh, thought it would be neat. So thanks for joining us. Well, yeah. awesome. Thank you for having me. Hey, Joe, can you kind of blast yeah. out some of your important, like, I hate to be a promoter, but like socials or how people can learn more about your oh, yeah. and all yep. the other stuff? Yeah, we mainly do stuff on Instagram. So follow us, Sweetleaf Bay Area. Um, anybody who wants to donate or get involved in compassion, feel free to send me an email at sweetleafjoe at gmail.com. Um, you know, check out our website, sweetleafcollective.org. And, um, yeah, I think, I think that's all the shout outs. Awesome, Joe. Well, hopefully, um, we'll get to connect in, in real life soon. And I'm so glad you called in. Yeah. Well, thanks guys for having me and have a beautiful evening. And you're totally still my hero and many other people's Ah. hero. Thank you, Joe, for all the work you do. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, everybody. Awesome. Bye. Bye, Joe. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, I thought that was just funny timing. So That was so synchronistic. Well, that's like, I mean, when I started to tell the whole story, like, Joe's a huge part of it. Like, I was sitting there. Ryan had, Ryan Miller had a slide. He asked for legal support. Joe was right there and you know he's just been an amazing person to work with and a real inspiration. I know he didn't mention it um, but I'll just say it now that he's off air. You know in the three years leading up to regulations so before 2018 Joe on his bike delivered um, you know through his network but specifically just you know in San Francisco a million dollars worth of cannabis to terminally ill patients um, that he has worked with consistently. And it's been incredible to meet those patients, to see them testify. And, you know, um, I really uh, just can't say enough how much it's been an honor, like a true honor. I can't understate it, like really an honor, you know, my career just to be able to, to help and support, um, people like, you know, Sweetleaf and these other um, advocates and their programs, you know, I really, it's just, (laughs) if anything else, I'm so glad. I think right when Joe called in, I was saying that I'm so glad that we had this win because I think that um, the community, the cannabis community and the cannabis industry um, need to have some really good um, templates and really good examples where we can say, we're actually making some progress and we're making some long-term commitments to some meaningful legacies and advancing things forward, both for the patients and for the people and for the plant. And like, even really to, to honor the things that operators have been doing for a long time. You know, I really look forward to making it easier um, for medical patients to be able to get access. And um, so, yeah, I don't know how if you want to segue or how much time we have, but I can definitely talk a little bit more about Appalachians if you want. Yeah, if you want to talk, tell, explain to us Appalachians, explain to us what Appalachians are, why sure. people should get involved with their local Appalachia group, how it can benefit them, and and uh, why it's important, especially with the growing international market. 
Definitely. Um, okay, so first off, most people are confused about Appalachian and what it means because they think that it's like referring to maybe like the mountain range, the Appalachian mountain range. And it actually is um, something that's a French term. So if you think of just like the word appeal, um, in these different systems, like in France, when we look at certain kinds of wine or cheese, champagne is a perfect example, camembert cheese, Parmesan cheese in Italy, um, and even you know wine in California as well. These are all different contexts in which there are Appalachian rights. That is where the producer, the cultivator, the creator, the farmer um, is able kind of in a collective way um, uh, to create goodwill that they protect, that's established, um, that in, in a way is a not a certification, but a standard that's met. Um, and in the creation of it, you actually make an appeal. You, you know, put together a whole petition, so to speak, to a regulatory body. Um, and if we think about it, well, it first happened in Europe. Um, there's some folks that are much more versed on the history than I. Um, Janine Coleman at the Mendocino Appalachians Project, Justin Calvino, um, they're both amazing speakers on this topic. But what it really means is it's creating a regulatory framework in California. Um, there's a statutory requirement to do so to create cannabis appellations or a, a framework for it by 2020. And um, right now we are awaiting the um, California Department of Food and Ag, the CDFA, to issue a packet that's going to set forth the proposed regulatory framework for cannabis appellations. That's a big mouthful, but you know, if we wanna think about it another way, it's like, if you can imagine special kinds of craft cannabis from particular regions here in California and hopefully in other regions as well later um, that are able to protect, so to speak, the Appalachian right or the mark. So kind of like when we see, you know, different kinds of Appalachians of wine from Napa or Sonoma, different sub-Appalachian groups where you'll see in France, like the AOC, the Appalachian origin controle, where it's a certain standard that one can, you know, inform the consumer about on their product. And, you know, you can't do that unless you are able to actually get this um, standard, so to speak, um, established and proven, you know, as a right holder. Um, that's a big mouthful, but the way, one way to revision it or to kind of conceptualize it is that this is one of the times where farmers can actually start to dictate the terms and conditions upon which they cultivate and a value for that. So for example, me, um, you know, farmers in Mendocino growing out in the sun, Humboldt as well, um, these, you know, Trinity County, um, I've worked with Big Sur farmers, um, farmers, you know, in these regions where there's both a documented history of cannabis cultivation, um, very specific, almost like microclimate or um, biospheres, you know, where you can see in very like isolated geographical areas, like think of Big Sur, right? That's a very special little system, especially the backside of the Santa Lucia range, um, where you can grow in a way where there's not a lot of pesticides, where there's maybe some special conditions, you know, like with fog and clean air and, you know, different other flora and fauna. And ultimately, you know, these same farmers that are growing in these, you know, um, very traditional and also very innovative places ultimately may be able to protect what they're doing and be able to have some kind of mark and certification on their cannabis that signals to everybody, hey, this is the special Mendocino subregion 
craft cannabis or this Big Sur, you know, Appalachian or this, you know, Willow Creek, Humboldt, you know, sub-Appalachian cannabis. And, and why that's important is because as, you know, Joe was talking about before and we, we brought up it, in California right now, it's very hard to operate, to meet your margins, to carry your tax burden, to do all the different things that a licensee has to do. And it's especially hard for small farmers, right? Um, it remains to be seen how many will survive this first year of regulation. But what we're trying to do is create, and when I say we, both farmers, um, you know, the CDFA, the stakeholders that they engaged, they actually had a working group. This is very cool. The regulators had a bunch of different farmers and a bunch of different local um, government agencies, I believe, and also trade associations participate in their working group to talk about how you create these laws. And the neatest thing about it is that if it's done effectively, cannabis appellations in California will be an international standard that can be harmonized in other countries and can set just kind of like we're talking about in a different way with compassion. We'll set, um, um, a, it's basically an intellectual property protection if, and it remains to be seen, we can harmonize it with different international treaties and, you know, in some way create what is going to be the first example of a protection here in the state um, that small, you know, hopefully, well, I don't know, it's going to depend on the different kinds of farmers. You, we, we got to that before about, well, what kind of farming and who will qualify, but for farmers, for organizations to be able to start to um, create something that actually signals what we know the consumer already wants, right? Some of the best cannabis in the world comes from California. It comes from, you know, the Emerald Triangle. It comes from, like when I mentioned Big Sur, that was one of the first places where cannabis actually started to be cultivated. And when we talk about Appalachian rights too, we're, this is the mystery that we don't know yet from the, the state. Will it just be when we're talking about Appalachians geographic, just special locations and those subregions, is it going to go to conditions that the farmer works with? Um, in some countries, it does. That gets to be a lot more complicated. But you know, when we see all of these different systems um, become integrated, right? We have different state siloed systems now. We may have descheduling at some point, unscheduling. Hopefully, we'll have the borders open up as well. And when that happens, and before it even happens, craft cannabis farmers. You know, the state has already recognized um, will have some kind of framework to protect what they're creating and to be able to signal to the consumer, hey, just like this, you know, special bottle of wine that came from this region and was, you know, grown, you know, here in, in California, that's, you know, certifiable and protectable and, you know, can't be claimed elsewhere. Same thing for, you know, these different subregions. And it's, I become so animated about it because like I said, there's like this cool crossroads of like tradition, you know, the actual um, agricultural practices of, you know, small farm, craft farm, that one of the big controversies, and I'll kind of slow this down so you can interject is the question of terroir, right? So land and the natural environment and how it's expressed through the cannabis plant. And the lawmakers, the policymakers, and some of the different, you know, stakeholder groups, you know, have very much had to marshal, you know, different concepts and facts to talk about that, you know, yeah, there's a difference, 
you know, experienced in cannabis that's been grown in a warehouse and never seen the light of day, there is a difference. And from that and from, you know, the cannabis flower that's been grown in the full sun, you know, in an isolated region um, that doesn't have some of the same conditions and might also have a lot of beneficials, all sorts of different other um, plants that are um, being grown around and near it and other um, different like flora and fauna, honestly. I mean, they're, so the working group happened <laughs> and getting ahead of myself, um, I co-chair the International Cannabis Bar Association's Appalachian Committee. And we are going to be working to put together a symposium with UC Berkeley School of Law, um, Cannabis Law Society and the Haas School of Business. And what it aims to do is to, while we're waiting for this packet, supposed to drop this fall, might drop in the spring, get together some of the best um, you know, experts and minds. Richard Mendelson, who created the, um, the uh, wine appellation system in California, who served on the working group, who is very much committed to seeing forward you know, a workable system for cannabis. Um, he will be a speaker. There is going to be a panel with um, someone from the California Department of Food and Ag, probably Richard Parrott and Janine Coleman, who's from the Mendocino Appalachians Project Origins Council. There's going to be a panel on cannabis IP, like trademarks, collective marks, certification marks, um, and how they relate to Appalachians, and also the business case for Appalachians, because you know so many people are like, well, do people care? You know, and that's a whole place where we were going, and then alongside the business case, right, and we could talk about that for a second, is also we're going to have a panel on science and sommelier, because the terpenes, the different expressions of this plant grown in what we're talking about, you know, that's Appalachian worthy very much can be proven. We're already starting to see, you can imagine um, the cannabis plant, um, you know, when it's grown in, in these ideal conditions is going to have a whole range of different things that will show up in tests, terpenes alone. Um, that will be very different from, you know, what's grown in a greenhouse. So I, I should like give you some space to ask questions, but at least I plugged that. And um, I know there's more to say about it, but um, yeah, <laughs> what else to cover what, there? I was just gonna say, is there any challenges you've had with trying to form the different Appalachians? And then is there limitations on like other states? So what if people are in like Oklahoma or, Florida or or some of these other far-flung places that maybe don't have you know any kind of concept of of what you know maybe they're doing in, in California um okay I'm just gonna move my computer so I can um power back in so bear with me so yes perfect question thank you for asking because it kind of goes to the very importance of you know why we want it not just for California but how it bears for the rest of the state and for example right in other states, I know Oregon specifically is very interested in the future of Appalachians um, because just like one thing to cover is that there is very much an overlap between the, um, the wine community, between viticulture and um, between um, cannabis because a lot of the historic regions that may have Appalachians developed for cannabis are also regions where there is wine. Um, or where there's, like I said, regenerative agriculture. So that's definitely um, something where I know there are stakeholders in Oregon that are um, very much interested to see a successful um, regulatory framework rolled out here in California so that they can hopefully, um, you know, adopt something similar. 
Um, there definitely are, as you know, like uh, cultivators in Oregon that have a lot of the same um, things and same, um, how can I say, like elements and requirements that would benefit for an Appalachian small farmers, traditional farmers, regenerative agriculture farmers growing in, you know, these areas where we have, you know, a terroir, so to speak, because it's it's proven and shown in wine and in other places, Washington state as well, Oklahoma, other states, you know, it remains to be seen because part of what we're talking about really is, and this is in what the CDFA looked at, the causal link, right, between the environment and the plant. And as we know, cannabis is a bioaccumulator. So I would say, and, and you know, some of the, having sat through the working group, I'm not a scientist myself, but I'm definitely appreciating and very much having to speak it and, you know, love it, um, is that, so when we talk about making that causal link, it is tied with not just the land, sometimes it's tied with the water, sometimes it's tied with um, other um, geographic elements that will, you know, that are proven and demonstrable to influence the cannabis plant. So I would pause it there because we're not totally there yet for other states, but I've heard other people talk about it off record. What if you have regions, for example, that have um, very rich um, minerals in their soil that are good for cannabis? I'm not talking about problematic ones, of course, because we've got heavy metals and all sorts of stuff in different places. What if you have um, regions in other parts of the country that have incredible water sources, you know, they're really impeccable, pure, whatever. I think that there totally are places where we can make a case for it, but certainly when we talk about it, we're contextualizing it in the context of both history, culture, practices, terroir, right? And so I don't see it being exclusive to California by any means. And I think that there is a beautiful um, possibility internationally to talk about terroir, you know, for some of the other areas where we know that these cultivars and strains have come from, right? India, Africa, as you're familiar, you know, some of the, the places where we've got some really incredible genetics that, you know, go back to the pharmacopoeia for a very long time and, and teach us, right? Um, <laughs> I guess that's kind of a long answer. So yes, I want, I would like to see cannabis Appalachians in California. I'd like to see it you know, for, of course, those places that we talked about before. And it remains to be seen when we create something that is workable, that um, means something to people, then I think there's a lot of other factors we can think about. Like I was, to give you kind of like a different conceptual model, you know, normal folks are just like, what are you talking about? You know, and I'll be like, okay, it's cannabis and like, you know, wine or cheese. But I was actually in Maine this summer in this really um, pure area um, it's a place where I've gone many times where, you know, the water is really clean. There are these like rivers and, um, and bays. And I was standing um, at a market looking at oysters and I was seeing the different markers of like, you know, somewhere nearby that I had been. And then like upstream, there was this, um, my friend was explaining to me that there's this like bay where they've actually cultivated oysters for like hundreds of years. Like Native Americans had middens and stuff. And I'm sitting there going, there's an argument, you know, like, the, the consumer wants to pick a, a good, a, a, you know, a crop or a, a plant, or, you know, here we're talking about things where we don't have the mark yet, we don't have the appellation, but the consumer knows that that environment is special. 
And that oyster is gonna taste different when it comes from that bay that's been kept clean and has that unique geographic signature in that location than you know, another oyster from some other place. So I know this seems tangential in one way, but in another way, it's kind of like, well, what is it we're protecting? Who are we protecting? You know, how do we enforce it? That's an open question, right? Because in Europe, <laughs> that's another thing. In Europe, they're almost like guild models. You know, like um, I know Frenchie Canoli like posted this amazing video of the Parmesan region. And there's like a whole minister of agriculture that's like devoted, just this, you know, this person devoted and the agency to making sure not just the cheese, not just the fields, not just the cows, but like the whole thing in Parmesan, like the, like the way that farming is done, that everything is protected, you know, so that you don't actually impact this beautiful craft Parmesan cheese that has to go through all these different things to be certified. So it's like this. Now, I don't know that we're ever going to get quite like that here in California. That's a whole other thing, but it's like, what are we protecting? Because the thing that we're talking about is actually protecting you know, the environment, the people, and the, the very like plant or grape or cheese itself, right? And that's super exciting. There's a lot to unload. It's not easy. Um, I think one issue is gonna be like long-term. That's a collective right, okay? So we're, we're talking about not everyone gets to use it, but like farmers within a group, hopefully they have a trade association or some, some body, we don't know yet, who will enforce or go after and advocate when let's say some cultivator in another part of California is mislabeling something and saying that it's from a Mendocino subregion and that it's sun grown when it's not. And when it's actually grown in different conditions, maybe indoors or maybe not quite anywhere near what we've been discussing, which is commanding quality that's based on the environment, a special environment, a special way of potentially conditions, right? Um, <clears throat> of doing things and not just um, like make cannabis, <laughs> if I can say that. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, you know, there's, there's definitely some atheism or definitely some like question, big questions people have, but there's also like so much passion and there's so much overlap um, between, you know, the tourism industries that will benefit the small farmers in these regions that maybe aren't just cannabis farmers, but by virtue of everything else, they are, you know, um, farmers that are, you know, practicing regenerative agriculture and also growing fruits and vegetables and, you know, able to command more for, you know, what they're producing because it's an appellation, not just for cannabis, but for other things. I mean, there's some really cool possibilities, but um, I think, uh, there's definitely a lot of laws to harmonize. <laughs> and, you know, the best thing is that the advocacy on the ground level, making sure that these things were in the statute so that we could, you know, have these different state agencies, um, you know, look into it. And also having, you know, a governor who has said he's committed to this. So I've heard that, and I'm gonna say that on record. I've heard he's committed to Appalachians. I know he comes from a wine producing family. And you know, if we're going to look at the long term for California, um, you know, there's really some important. He is also allowing the National Guard to spend a hundred million dollars to go after growers on a weekly basis, too, though. 
Right. So that's the thing where like when we started and I felt like maybe I, you know, I don't want to come across harshly when I say war, but we've got whole regions where we're it talking is, about though. it is a war. That's what I'm saying, where we have small farmers that are in different processes of trying to get online. It's not easy, you know, to get um, all of the different things that you have to do locally, plus the state. And, you know, one of the biggest points everyone has been making, especially lately, is that um, we need to provide more opportunity and ability to license first before folks are gone after in a militaristic style. I agree with you. I was not trying to um, glamorize Gavin Newsom. Oh, no, no, no. I wasn't but, trying to yeah. say that you were. I just wanted to counterbalance that with some of his other recent actions. Oh, no. And that's the thing is, I think, you know, ironically, when we talk about resources being wasted, because we are talking about state agencies and resources, you know, there have been instances over the last six months, especially in places like, you know, Mendocino and Humboldt and Trinity County, where you have, you know, um, national or federal resources being coordinated with both, both um, they deny it, but with, with uh, local um, law enforcement, you know, flying over farms, licensed farms sometimes, farms that have had, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of damage sustained when you, you can easily see that they're licensed, going after farmers that aren't even farming cannabis, that's happened too, farmers that are just vegetable farmers. And really honestly, um, I've heard over and over from regulators, I've seen it in print that state resources are supposed to be devoted to going after the worst actors, which are the ones, you know, they say, that are polluting, you know, the national parks and forests and the ones that are, you know, maybe engaging in unfair labor practices and, you know, um, human trafficking even, um, you know, the, the folks that are the worst actors. And um, from what I've seen reported, you know, there are instances where perhaps the state is, you know, committed to that, but they're, like you pointed out, there are plenty of other instances where people are having, you know, six BCC representatives show up to make sure that they're compliant for a very small delivery service when supposedly there are these, or, well, not supposedly, there are bad actors and working on a much larger scale than a licensee who is just, you know, there and responsive and able to show you their SOPs, you know? Like there's a huge discrepancy in terms of what we call enforcement right now and how resources are being allocated. Um, I would love to see more resources, you know, allocated to um, Appalachians. Cause like I just started telling you, there's a huge amount of resources that need to be committed. And myself as a lawyer doing pro bono services, I, you know, was encouraged to um, work um, to do this work, you know, in different groups because I was working with small farmers that needed help. I showed up at a CDFA workshop, okay, over a year ago where they said, we're going to, this is the, you know, this is the Appalachian, um, what did they call it? It wasn't the working group yet. It was like a, some kind of informational meeting. And they basically had butcher paper out, like these huge pads. And they had, you know, farmers and different folks show up and they, it was literally like that, like blank slate, like, Hey, you know, what do you guys want to do? What do you think an Appalachian should be? And I was like, Oh my God, we need so much help. I mean, what we're talking about is again, like not just individuals or businesses, but like groups of farmers getting together to put these petitions together and successfully have them be processed by the state and then have it, you know, a, a system be implemented that is workable for Appalachians, you know, where you can make sure those farmers doing 
you know, whatever the requirements are for an Appalachian lift by it. And the ones that aren't, you know, they don't get to benefit. And so, you know, <laughs> building out that in the face of all the other things that are going on. Um, I just want to say that, you know, all the farmers out there, you know, whether they're working in communities where they've had to fight to get the ban lifted, like in Calaveras, or, you know, places where there's still bans and, you know, where people are being constrained or places where there aren't bans, but it's just really hard to license. This is about like the long game. This is going to take a long time. Um, and this is just the beginning, kind of like we we're saying about compassion. But, um, you know, it's very much at the epicenter of, you know, what's good for the earth, you know, what's important in terms of climate change, what's actually like sustainable for our, um, our land, our communities, um, you know, what's healthy, what creates healthy medicine. And ultimately, you know, in the midst of like what we're talking about, like these crazy economies of scale internationally, regionally, how we deal with silos, you know, when we've got craft cannabis growing in California, Oregon and Colorado, and then, or Colorado, when I'm saying Washington. And then we have these other parts of the country where, you know, we're just starting to license and maybe we don't even have the same kinds of growing conditions or traditions or, you know, regions and all of that. It's like, this isn't for the faint hearted, <laughs> I guess. Um, and I feel, I feel really bad with, you know, how many people dive or especially in the last year with the hemp stuff have dove headlong into the industry with no idea about what they're getting into and how vicious this industry can be and how the especially on the regulatory end you can have the rug pulled out right from underneath you you could you could suddenly have your main product be announced as illegal and and, the, and, and never be legalized again that's happened to some products i've done some r d on um I, you know all different types of things that that can happen to you. Um, you know, imagine if you're a vape pen producer right now, you've had sales have plummeted by 60% if you're selling vape carts, you know, uh, or so you're selling bulk oil, you know, there, there are no people that are selling on 55 gallon drums right now, you know, like good luck trying to move that stuff. So they're, you know, they're trying to turn it into edibles, trying to turn it into other stuff and trying to find somewhere on the market. But now that market's getting flooded. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff where if you don't have multiple contingency plans on how to retool your 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 offtake and retool some of your, your production, you're screwed. And, 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 and it, this happens a lot and people don't realize it. So you're especially seeing this now where people bet their farms on this hemp stuff, maybe, maybe had a fusarium botrytis or septoria or something else, didn't know what they were doing uh, or didn't know how to properly manage it or didn't, um, you know, didn't have very good soil or maybe they had a, a flooding, you know, a lot of places had floods this year and had a lot of additional, you know, pest pressures that, that weren't normally part of the normal, uh, you know, equation, you know, and that they just weren't, weren't, weren't banking on, or they just didn't have any experience period with it, which is a lot of people planting way too dense and, and, or not dense enough and, and all this other stuff. So, so now you have it with these new regs that they want to put forth with the USDA, make it 0.3 after decarboxylation, which is completely asinine. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at the 0.3 regulations, those 0.3 regulations came from a USDA ruling from 1974 under the Carter administration. And that testing for 0.3% explicitly said from leaf tissue, okay? Um, not from the buds, 
like they want to do testing for. They want to cut the top two inches of buds off and test that. Okay, we know that's that that that's completely ludicrous. You know, that's not what the original regulatory structure that they put out back in '74 said that they're using as the basis and they're citing as as their number and the reason for the number, which is this previous USDA ruling back in the '70s. So. So that, that's completely ridiculous that they're going to use that as, as the basis for it. And thank you um, to Oregon CBD. Uh, they actually did a very well-sourced and well-written article. If you guys want to learn more, go check it out. They did a really good thing on that. But, uh, and I know I don't want to get too much into it because I think we're going to, we're going to try to get Dale Hunt on, on, on Tuesday to really get into it. Oh, cool. Oh, good. Um, uh, hopefully he'll be with us. He can definitely, I would definitely bring up Appalachians with him. I, I saw him at a panel um, at Meadowlands um, where he spoke and Janine Coleman and from Mendocino Appalachians Orchard Council. And um, let me see here, Rebel Grown, I'm trying to remember, um, a few cultivators were on the panel as well. And I know that he's been doing some work. I think that um, in terms of plant patents and the like, that's like a whole other time and topic and how oh, genetics yes, yes, plays yes. into it. Um, <laughs> We've covered that quite extensively in other episodes. I'm just going to make this very hard emphasis stop here. Richard Mendelssohn said this live. I've said it over and over to folks. In France, when they set up the um, appellation system for wine, part of the requirement in those petitions or that, you know, the appellation um, itself, when you are trying to create the basis for your protection of the, of the, um, particular region and practices and the like, um, they were required to specify um, the cultivars, right? And here in California, we do have this language about standards, practices, and varietals. And so it has been advised that when farmers, and we don't know yet, we don't have the packet yet, but we, we've advised over and over that farmers not just lock in one type of cultivar or different types of cultivars they've traditionally used because climate change is upon us. And in France, they kind of locked in specific, you know, like you think about it, Chardonnay, right? These certain kinds of grapes in these regions. And so we definitely are gonna need to have the ability to both, you know, cultivate and protect cultivars that are, are you know, um, traditional to the region, but also to allow for innovation and to allow really for like the farmers to exercise their craft and their stewardship with the plant because it's going to change over time. Like, now, could they set up something like could they set up something like a regular, you know, every five or ten years or three years, add new cultivars or some kind of regular review? Um, I mean, I think a lot of it just remains to be seen because so much of what we're talking about is like theoretical, right? And it could go a lot of different ways and it's going to require some moving parts that haven't even really been identified yet. But I do think that like, you know, even though we know that there are certain regions where um, traditionally like some cultivars have been grown very um, successfully and have a certain kind of terpenoid profile, for example, and, you know, no plant is always the same every season, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you know, working with that, I think there, there's something to, to be said, but even so, you know, the, the, again, the farmers, I think need to, to have some really important say here along with the scientists, because you don't want to build a whole system around only certain types of cannabis cultivars when in fact, you know, a region may, um, or even the sub region, you know, there's certain, types of plants that are going to come, 
you know, that are going to show themselves and prove themselves to over time um, be more optimal, right? And and what we're protecting again isn't just the the plant, but the farmer and the region and the whole enchilada or the whole, like um, Janine Coleman says it's kind of like layers of the onion when we talk about what what the heck this is or what is being protected. But the onion's real. It's just they're all these different layers, right? So there's there's definitely a piece there. I always think of it like well, I had a pleasure of going down and spending time down in Westmoreland in Jamaica. And uh, I'll leave this the town out to keep some of my friends out of trouble. But um, we ended up going to this town on the coast. And down on the coast, the town, the, the village up above has like their docks and everything all set up for for you know moving different agricultural products that they grow. And then you go up to the hills and uh, just up just up the road from there and um you know the whole they have this whole town it's a whole village there's probably 150 200 people there and the entire village works a massive multi-acre grow and process it every you know processes it dries it cures it moves it packages it up and everyone gets a, i think it was 100 pounds per per harvest or per month or per xyz amount that they can then cash out or distribute or whatever. And that was part of their payment. It was, it was really interesting. This is years ago, so it's you know, nothing recent, but um, it was just interesting and always made me think, you know, makes you realize how the literally like a whole, this whole, you know, probably four or 500 people, you know, between the two, the, the two areas, um, you know, are supported by this one agricultural field, you know, and it was just, kind of crazy <laughs> you know well i mean that's the thing is like you know there are i don't know exactly what that climate or that you know specific spot and place was like and what the what you know what kind of cannabis was like you know produced there in those conditions but it's that's really you know when you talk about appalachians and terroir and and what the heart of this is it's place you know it's how you protect the cannabis plant cultivated in these special regions and, you know, the, the farmers, you know, who intervene and steward along with what, you know, is being kind of expressed naturally, right? It's like a, <laughs> you try to isolate what it is or, you know, it's, it's a couple different things, but certainly like what you're describing, it's, you know, my IP law professor that, you know, is my mentor, um, you know, rest in peace, Keith Aoki, you know, you talk about seed saving and, and these different like innovations over time as being thousands of years of collective knowledge, you know, how we protect it, how we reward it, what it looks like, what it's based on, how we prove it. That's the future. And yep. I hope that we can do this work that we're talking about in time to save um, the practitioners because, you know, they're at the heart of this too, right? Yep. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's, I mean, there's so many different practices in different um, regions and communities and countries where like, I, I don't know, I, every time I see articles about the charas making in, um, <laughs> right? Like that. Love charas, tastes so good. Like those areas and what, you know, like the, that, I mean. It's all like gum in Jamaica. And I've heard even those communities, right, are being um, subject to a lot of change so and. That's what I was. 
so that's what i was talking about is that the that's also one of the other things they make up there they can get extra harvests out of it that way yeah i mean it's it's something like you know when we go back to oysters again like there's something there you know there's definitely a lot to be proven but how do we create some other um like value and protection and 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 a system to further support those traditions so that they don't you know disappear but so they're able to actually continue to teach all of us and you know, help us um, emerge, you know, as all these conditions are changing. I mean, not to bottom line it too much, but, you know, I can only imagine in those, in those traditional regions, um, how much change, natural change we're seeing, you know, um, and, you know, what it's going to take to keep those traditions alive, right? Um, Yeah, I just... (laughs) astounding i mean it reminds me actually in in one of the advisory hearings going back to sb34 there was a one of the cultivators you know just talking about like the kinds of protections we want you know for small farmers and they were just going off about how it's all in the pharmacopoeia you know they kind of want to say that too sometimes like it's there's so much amazing you know natural work that goes on and then there's also like a lot of really um intense very much powered by man um sometimes not so natural um you know production that's going on as well and i i definitely i know you know you wouldn't have me on talking about this you too like want to be on the side of assisting those traditions and and elevating things you know absolutely yeah no and then for other people that are want to get a better perspective on how you know, an Appalachia or a tiny, a regional production can support it. The, look up the documentary, The Union, and <laughs> explains how at one point about a third of Vancouver was grow houses. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, and uh, the, the whole top to bottom on how everyone from police officers to, um, you know, judges to school teachers were, had second houses that they were growing and it was completely crazy there for a while. So, um, you know, it, it just goes to show you how, you know, when you have a regional production, even if it's even illicit like that, it, 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 it drives the economy. And now when you look, go back and look at areas like Redway and uh, Happy Camp and all these other places now, they're desolate. Happy Camp has one store within an hour and 20 minute drive. There used to be six general stores that you could get products from you know and that's that's you know that's a huge expense on those people that live up there they now have to drive a good hour you know or 45 minutes where they used to be able to drive 15 and you know they don't make a lot of money to begin with and it puts a lot of extra strain on these communities so people end up just leaving you know there's not a lot of you know it just it sucked the money out of when they came in and they they were heavy-handed with the regulatory stuff they just sucked the money right out of the areas because there's there's no more money flowing around you know especially redway though i've been there three separate times and man has it just looked like a absolutely night and day difference from the first time i was there it's like seeing how things are impacting communities you know it, it, it and also watching how discussions about water rights too and other um long-term issues that remain um I'm, I'm just speaking, you know, to these different regions in California, it's, it's very intense. I mean, the one thing that I think everybody underestimates is how complicated, how many, how much resources, both, you know, monetarily and also like employees it takes to 
make this transition. And it just, you know, makes me think about the footprint of these economies and what they, how they operated before. Um, Cause I've even heard like there, you know, are instances where roads and schools and all sorts of things were created through, you know, smaller communities where those resources wouldn't have been available otherwise. And so I'm not glorifying that or saying like, that's the answer because the state and the voters and, and everyone have already, you know, um, expressed their will, so to speak. But the real issue is like in, you know, wherever we look, where there is some form of so-called legalization, you know, who's left out, who's allowed to get online, what that looks like, you know, what the, you know, product is, whether it's, has medical benefit and, and, and has integrity. And even if that can be scaled, those are so many things like that remain to be seen. And then, then you know, at the same time, these infrastructures and, and communities and really like informal, you know, ways of, of, you know, carrying out goodwill are like not at all the same. I, I don't wanna say that they're all dead because like tomorrow I'm, I'm just gonna plug it right now. I'm going up to House of Humboldt which is put on by the Humboldt Growers Association. And it's basically, you know, a bunch of local cultivators and operators, licensees who are able to showcase their work to um, other um, licensees. It's a B2B um, <clears throat> event. I believe it's sold out, um, but I'm super excited because it's up in Humboldt and it's, you know, the actual farmers coming out there and being able to engage with the other operators and licensees, you know, along the way, distributors and retailers so that, you know, we can support um, being able to, you know, have this market um, remain viable and, and, you know, eventually, you know, I'd really love to see it be a lot easier. I mean, like, 80% right now of California still doesn't have storefront access. And, um, you know, Joe pointed out earlier in the call, you know, that so many licenses have been suspended. So, you know, I'm just putting it out there in the midst of the fires and everything else that we've talked about that, you know, our, our cultivators that are, you know, have been brave and, and have, you know, stepped forward and, and made these tremendous efforts are, you know, able to, continue on, <laughs> you know, it's, the struggle is, is real. And I'm so inspired by them myself. Um, and, you know, having other, other folks like Sweetly Joe and um, just the intersection between um, patients and, um, you know, what medical cannabis and those laws were created for. And, you know, this transition of, you know, being able to preserve those things and also integrate other other aspects like Appalachians is really exciting, but um, the other elements out there are, are pretty pretty intense as well. So <laughs> I hope that's I hope that's at least um, optimistic, like a realist optimistic realist here. You know, I I do believe in 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 both of these different um, arenas that we were talking about. So. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time. We're, we're just about to wind wrap up. Um, I really appreciate how much time you've given us and uh, getting into all your awesome work with SP34 and then talking about uh, the Appalachians and, and all that and really uh, helping us get to better understand that. And, and for people out there that are you know, in other markets to, to have kind of a template and, and some other legislation that has been passed 
they can use, you know, to reference for their own states when they're trying to make, you know, a lobby for why they should have compassionate care laws and, and, you know, gives them the resources and to reach out to you know, people like yourself to, to, um, you know, get that stuff through and, and, you know, you shoot, even if it's just as far as, Hey, what, what legislation do we need to have in our legalization bill for, you know, if you're, if you're in a state that hasn't legalized yet, make sure you can get these provisions as part of your bill. Um, so that people don't suffer and you don't have medical patients that are relying on this plant, you know, to survive getting left at the wayside. So well said, absolutely. I mean, there's that, let that be everyone's North star really like with, this is, you know, talking with Joe and others, it's kind of like, we're both, you know, protecting some of the best things from the past. And we're also like, we've got to create a very vital, healthy, future for everyone in this. And that means patients, businesses, especially, you know, the people taking care of this plant. Um, and it may take, it may take a very long-term commitment, but, you know, absolutely. So thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. And uh, uh, yeah. So how do people find out more about you and, uh, and if they want to contact you or, and work with you on any of the stuff that you're working on now? Sure. So um, I serve as of counsel at McAllister Garfield, which is a multi-state law firm. And you can check out my bio um, at their website, McAllisterGarfield.com. Um, my email address over there is Ann at McAllister, or yeah, Ann at McAllister.com. And um, I also uh, have a practice at Kelson Law Group, and you can contact me also um, as well, A-K-E-L-S-O-N-E-S-Q at gmail.com. Um, and, um, I'm sure there's some way to contact me through INCBA also, but, um, yes, those are, those are the ways to find me and I look forward to it. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks a lot. And, uh, thanks everybody for listening to the show. Um, uh, I've been just working on, uh, a little bit of stuff, working on paperwork for Africa and then, uh, actually have a quick trip off to, uh, Texas next week to go talk to somebody about a big grow in Texas, which kind of blew my mind, but apparently that's happening soon. So that's crazy. Uh, but um, I'll be back again. Uh, we'll have the show normal time Tuesday and Thursday next week. Thursday, we have Harvey Smith, uh, who will be on the show. Uh, those of you know, that have seen the NPK University videos, he's got a lot of great educational information out there. Uh, so if that's something you're interested in learning more about, definitely check him out. He's definitely one of the better sources of of solid uh, uh, cannabis education out there. He'll be joining us on Thursday. And um, yeah, Tuesday, tentatively we'll have Dale Hunt. Well, I'm still waiting to confirm. Uh, if not, we'll have somebody else on uh, that's that's really good. And uh, yeah, uh, you can find the podcast at your favorite podcast app uh, on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts. Uh, all the different places working on getting caught up on the weed tube and a couple of the other oddball sites I've, I've lagged behind a little bit but we'll, we'll get up there and um, shout out to true aquaponics him and I are working on uh, hopefully getting that project soon for you guys having the the dosing services available on, on subscription so that'll be ready here in the next few weeks certainly by Christmas we'll have that ready to go and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing you guys again soon next week. And uh, thanks everybody for, for joining us tonight. Take care. And uh, oh, please go out and support Nick Risden. Um, you know, he's really been through a lot. We touched that in that beginning of the show. 
if you can show him some love, uh, we'll, we'll make sure we find, you know, post a link on a way to support him or, you know, get him some donations if you guys want to help support him and the struggle he's going through. Uh, all right. Um, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Cheers.